Let's pray together. Lord, the uh, words of the drama break our hearts because we know that it, it's not just a story. It, it's, it's happening. And people's lives have been hurt even by the church. And there are people like in Rudy's song who um, are asking for the light to be on and Sometimes it hasn't been on in our own lives. So we, we look to you, the one who created light, simply by speaking those words, let there be light. The one whose son came into the world as a light of the world, whose presence in heaven means that the brightness of Jesus requires no sun. We ask you to shine. Shine on us right now through your word. Shine in us through your spirit that we, your people, might truly be a people who have the light shining bright for others, for you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I can't help but think of the old Motel 6 commercial when I hear the song Rudy just sang. Do you remember it? I mean, if I was Bob Goodsell, I could, I could just do it perfect. You know, the little twang, hi, I'm Tom Bodet, and we'll leave the light on for you. Remember that? And as I think of that song and I think of that commercial, what I'm hearing in in my mind's ears is the words of Jesus. He says, "I, I want you to leave the light on for me, for my purposes in this world. And he says to us, you're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. So he says to us as followers, like a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. He says, nor do men light a lamp and Put, a, put it under a bowl or put a bowl over it. No, they put it on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. So let your light shine in such a way that people see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I'm, I'm wondering how the light's doing, your light. Is it on? What's the wattage of the light emanating from your life? You up to 40-watt bulb this morning? Any 60 years out there, 75? Some of you burning bright at 100 strong, 150, 200? Some of us, if we're honest, we're like those three-way bulbs, aren't we? Man, I'm bright right here at church. Oh, yeah, 150. I'm okay at work, at school, 100. Home? Man, that's hard. It's hard to shine, shine bright with the people you live with, isn't it? Maybe we're down to 50 there. How you doing? How's the light? How's the wattage of your life? We're back in the book of Ephesians. Yeah, we took that break in May. Got those defining questions done. Now we're back. So it's, it's time to reorient, reorientate ourselves and our minds in the flow of the text. So we remember the book of Ephesians is all about our identity in Christ, and it's all about our mission for Christ. Our identity is rooted in Christ, remember? We're a people who've been chosen, We're a people who've been adopted. We're a people who've been redeemed and forgiven. We've been made alive by Christ, new life in Him. We've been reconciled to God and to each other. That's just the beginnings of who we are. And he says in chapter 1, verse 3, in Christ we have it all. We've got it all. 
Then in chapter 4, he moves from our identity in Christ to living out the identity, and he moves to our mission. Remember chapter 4, verse 1? He calls us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. What is that calling? It's our calling as Christ's followers. He says, now, I want you to, to live it out. I want your living to measure up to your calling. That's what the word worthy means. So a life that measures up in chapter 4 was a life that's preserving unity and walking in unity as we pursue the church's maturity, as we grow individually together to be more like Christ. And that's going to require the humility that he talks about in those opening verses. It's going to require that loving service of giving our gifts and sharing those to, to help each other grow and help others that don't know Christ grow. And he talked about, well, we need to have, walk in integrity in the second half of chapter 4. Pastor Kell laid out that passage for us, and it was that whole section of, of kind of like changing wardrobe, putting off and putting on. And what he said is you want to live a life of integrity, and you're struggling with, with things like, um, well, like lying. He says the, the way to get rid of lying is start putting on truth. You put on truth, you won't be telling lies. You, you got a problem with anger? Well, put on forgiveness. You, you got a problem with stealing and, and being a grabber in life? Well, put on a generous heart of giving to those in need. You got a problem with your tongue? Your word's always tearing down? Well, put on words that are seasoned with grace and just the right words at the right time that help people and encourage people and build them up. And now we turn to chapter 5, and he says, I want you to walk in love. In many ways, the command to walk in love is just, in a sense, a summary of what he's already said in chapter 4. He says, walk in love. And when you walk in love, you're going to shine. That's really what these opening verses are of Ephesians chapter 5. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, page uh, 829. And the flow of the text goes like this. When we walk in love, we're going to shine like Jesus. And when we shine like Jesus, verses 1 and 2 says, we, like Jesus, are going to give ourselves up for other people. That's the, the first flow of the text. And then the teaching goes in a completely opposite way and it says we're going to shine like Jesus and our lights are going to shine for Jesus when we don't give in to sinful desires. All right? So start in verses 1 and 2. And here's what he says. He says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first thing God says is, look, I, I want you as my children to imitate me, your heavenly father. I don't know if you remember the old commercial for the, the Lung Cancer Society. It was this great commercial of a dad bopping around with his son. And everything the dad did, the son would do. And at the end of the commercial, remember this? The dad leaned down, sat down up against a tree, and he lit a cigarette. And the message was clear. What you're doing, your son's going to do. Think of the consequences. Well, look at these pictures of kids imitating their dads. These are great. Going to work with dad in his white shirt and tie. Walking like dad and maybe grandpa there, hands behind the back, shaving. Smoking the bubble pipe, Jackie Bremer, just like her dad. Cooling at the poolside like his dad. Bringing in the, uh, the fighter jet, just like, it's great. 
And he says, hey, you're my kids. You got a heavenly father who loves you. I want you to imitate me. I want you to walk in love. Now, when you think about God's love, Paul's been talking about God's love in this, ch- in this uh, book. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. God adopted us as his sons because he loved us, is what he's saying. Remember his love. In chapter 2, he says, God's love is a great love. And he goes on to say in verses 4 through 6, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we are dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. And so he says, you guys want to leave your light on? You want to shine bright? Well, then you imitate your father and you walk in love. And he goes on to say, imitating God is really imitating Jesus. Because that's where he just goes. He says, just as Jesus gave himself up for us. And then he becomes this fragrant offering offered up to the Father. And so imitating God is really imitating Jesus. Some of you here today say, I don't really know what God's like. I hear people talk about he's this big force out there. Well, Jesus came into this earth to tell us and to show us what God is like, what the Father's like. In fact, when he shows up on the scene, one of his disciples, John, describes him as the Word. Why does he use that metaphor to describe Jesus? Because Jesus, like words, explains the Father. The writer of Hebrews says he's the exact representation of the Father. So you want to imitate God? What does that look like? It's a life of love. What does that life of love look like? It's a life like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He gave himself up for us. And when he did it, he gave himself to the Father. He lived his life as a fragrant offering. So there's kind of two people in life. There there are those who are giving themselves up for others, and there are those who are wanting others to give themselves up for them. And Paul's saying, you want to shine? You want to leave the light on? Then be like your Father. Be like Jesus, his Son, Give yourself up for others. And when you do that, you shine. We shine. And when we don't, the lights start going out. Well, he goes on. And he talks about, well, before he goes on, let me go back to 1 John 4, because it's a great passage on the love of God. Look it up on the screen, 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So you've got a problem with love. It's because you don't know the God who is love. You don't have a relationship with him. If you did, you would be a lover of God and of others, even your enemies. Then he goes on in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. What does love look like? It looks like the father giving his son to us into this world that we might live through Jesus, through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for others. And so at the heart of love is giving yourself up for others, just like God gave his only son for us and Jesus gave his one and only life for us. And when he gave himself up, it's not a metaphor Jesus really did that. Maybe you don't know that Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross for you and for me. He died in our place for all the things we had done in rebellion against God. 
that severed our relationship with God and put us in serious harm's way. Jesus died for you and for me. And the heart of love is giving yourself up. And the heart of sin is exactly the opposite. It's giving in to sinful desires. And this is the flow of the text. So he goes from the sweet smell of love, this fragrant aroma that went up to the Father when Jesus laid down his life for us. And it goes from that sweet smell of a rose to what I call the putrid stench of Limburger cheese. Have you ever smelled Limburger cheese? Well, I, I could introduce you to 17 freshman girls at Bethel College that know all about the stench of Limburger cheese. You see, these girls weren't very wise when they raided the guys' townhouses first. And, and they didn't know that guys are into vengeance. I know the scriptures say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But at this point, they were glad to take their turn at a raid and a prank. And so it started like this. 17 freshman girls were mysteriously all asked out on the same night, Friday night. So they're out of there, right? Then, then the troops move in. All three floors of the furniture got relocated and became patio furniture, lawn furniture, all of it. But then we got the Limburger cheese out. We started smearing over the light bulbs. So that, yeah, you know. But we figured they'd figure that one out pretty quick. And so we started unscrewing the heat vents, started sticking it up in the heating vents. Now, these, this wasn't my idea. I just want <laughs> I was just, I was just exercising my gift of helps and wanting to support the guy. <laughs> so you can imagine the stench in that place for quite a while. And, and this is where he's going, from the sweet smell of giving your life up for someone else, like Jesus, to the putrid smell of Limburger cheese. Or, or for most of us, we, we don't know what that's like. So you just think about driving by the sewage plant. You get the drift? It's bad. I mean, you're trying to shut off everything that's moving in your car because you don't want to smell that. It's like driving through Gary, sorry, Gary, Indiana. Man, it's bad. And, and what's bad here is this giving in to sinful desires. Not only is it a stench in the nostrils of our great God, but the light starts going out, starts going out. So look at verses 3 and 4 as he switches now to this whole thing of giving in to sinful desires. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of purity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So when we don't give in to these sinful desires, we shine. And he just sets the bar up about as high as you can get it. Because the standard is this, not a hint. Not a hint. Not a trace. Not a, not a leaning to these things. What things? Well, he lists three pitfalls that, in a sense, get down to th- two major categories. He starts off talking about sexual uh, immorality and sexual impurity. The word immorality is just speaking about any sex outside of marriage. God created sex. It's a great thing that's enjoyed in the confines of a marriage. One man and one woman committed together for life. 
when it's outside of that, that's wrong. He says, not a hint of moving in that direction, of pursuing that kind of intimacy, not a hint of it. Then there's this whole matter of impurity. Impurity uh, has everything to do with something that is a huge issue in our day, pornography, a billion-dollar industry. I'm sure there are hundreds in our own church that regularly are struggling with this. He says, not a hint of this. I just want to say to young men here, young boys here, this stuff kills. As a pastor for over 25 years, I can tell you, I've seen it wipe out more marriages. It'll ruin your life. Treat it like fire. He says there's not to be a hint of that, sexual immorality, of impurity. Then he goes and he talks about something completely different. He says it shouldn't be a hint of greed. And when you usually think about greed, we think about money and material possessions, and that's right. This coveting of things that you don't have and you want with this hope that somehow they're going to satisfy you, which they don't, they can't. And when the Bible talks about greed, it's also talking about a sexual side of greed, where you lust and desire and covet those kinds of pleasures. And then he goes on, he talks about filthy talk. There's obscenity. When you and I usually hear the word obscenity, we think of, well, you know, a bad word, a swear word. Well, in the original language here, it means just filthy words, filthy language. He says, not only that, it's not to be foolish talk. And we think about the word foolish in our day. We'd say, well, someone who's a fool is stupid. When the Bible talks about a fool and foolishness, it's not talking about stupid. It's not talking about intelligence. It's a moral word that talks about a wicked person, talks about a perverse heart. So you shouldn't have those kind of words, perverse words. Filthy talk like those dirty jokes that get spread around the office or the locker room. No coarse joking, not a hint of it. Coarse joking is like the late night humor, full of sexual innuendo and double entendre, double meaning. Not a hint of these things, he says. Because those things start to diminish the light. You can't shine when you're pursuing these sinful desires. Now notice the antidote. It's very interesting. I wasn't expecting it. It's a surprise at the end of verse 4. The antidote is the power of giving thanks. You see, when we are people who are giving thanks, our focus is on God and what He's given us, not on the desires and what I don't have. So if you're someone who's struggling with pornography, it used to be said it's every man's battle. Now statistics and studies shows it's not just an issue for men. It's, it's now starting to reach women in our culture. And normally as a pastor, what I would say to someone who's caught in this, this awful, addictive curse is the first thing you need to do is you've got to come clean. You tell God what he already knows. You confess your sin, you ask him to forgive you, and you find his forgiveness. That's the first step. Then I'd say is, you need to go find a friend. You need to find a friend who can encourage you in your fight against this battle. Someone who can ask you the hard questions in your life to keep you accountable. I'd say you need to pray and immerse yourself in God's word and ask God to help you through the power of his spirit. I don't know if I would say, until I read this passage, here's another thing you ought to do. In fact, maybe this is one of the first things you ought to do after you confess to God is start cultivating a heart of thanks. So you wake up in the morning and you start giving thanks for all the things God's given you. 
Remember chapter one, verse, verse three says, in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Some of us, we don't even know what those are yet. But there's all kinds of things he's given us from our health to the roof over our heads, to the clothes we're wearing, to the job, to our families, to all these different things. We start giving thanks, focusing on God and what he's given us and what we have. That's a huge antidote to chasing these calls, these temptations that say, hey, hey, follow me because I promise you lots of pleasure. When you find your pleasure being satisfied in Christ, these things grow strangely dim. That's the antidote. Then he goes into the warning. Look down at verse 5 and 6. And this ought to scare the heebie-jeebies out of all of us. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So, we go back to verse 3, and he says, among you, he's talking about the church, the people who are Christ's followers, not a hint of this stuff, reminding us that it will be our battle in life, dealing with temptation. Of course it's a battle. Jesus battled with temptation. He just succeeded at every point. Tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, the Bible says. But it's our temptation, and, and he says here, you can be sure of this, that no immoral, impure, greedy person has any inheritance, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. So the first thing he says is, look, don't be deceived by these empty words. What are the empty words? The empty words are words that say this. Hey, I know you're struggling this, but you know what? You're being too hard on yourself. Everybody's doing it. Man, there's a lot of worse things you could be in. You know what? God's loving you. He's merciful. He'll forgive you. You don't worry about it. Those are empty words. Spoken by a brother or sister in Christ who's well down this path of continually giving themselves in and over to these sinful desires. They're empty words because they're hollow. There's, there's no basis of truth. There's no substance in them. They're deceptive words. They aren't able to deliver. Just don't let anyone deceive you with these words. The context is words that we would hear from people within the church who say it's okay to follow sinful desires. He says, no, it's not okay. The reason it's not okay is not only are we not going to receive our inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, which is heaven. Not, not only are we going to be deprived of God's reward that begins today and gets its fulfillment as we see Christ face to face in heaven, but what, it's not just what we're not going to get, it's what we are going to get. You're going to get God's wrath. You are going to face judgment. You say, wait a minute. What is he saying here? What he's saying here if you call yourself a Christian and your fight against sin has now brought you to the place where you're continually, willfully giving in to sinful desires, you have every reason to ask yourself this question, am I really a follower of Christ? Do I really have a share of his promises of heaven? 
do I really have the covering of Christ in my life or am I going to face God's wrath? It's not talking to you and to me, to all of us who are fighting sin and at times we find ourselves falling short. He's talking to us who we're no longer fighting it anymore. The fight's gone. We've given in. We've capitulated. We've caved in. We now have surrendered just abandoned, complete abandon to these things. And that's now marking our life, a life now of giving in to sinful desires. So we're going to shine when we don't give in. Without a hint is the standard. We're not going to shine as our life continues to give in to sensuality to sinful desires, to greed, to anger and revenge. I I think he's just given us a sampling here. There's all kinds of sinful desires outside of, of sex and outside of greed. But he does say, these people have made sex and money and themselves an idol. They've become idolaters. They're now worshiping these things and not God. So how's the battle How's the battle? You know, as your pastor, one of the things that I'm mindful of this morning is, especially in this whole matter of sexual purity, uh, we live in a culture whose standard is not without a hint. That's an understatement. We, we live in a culture that echoes all the empty voices that one might find even within the confines of the church. There, there are no moral absolutes. And trying to live a life of sexual purity is is mocked. (laughs) You're just weird. Get out of the Victorian age. Come on, man. We're progressive. What I know is this is all of our struggles in different areas. And what I long for is a church where we can be real with each other and say, look, I'm losing the battle here. And I need reinforcement. I need help. And we need to figure out a way to help the men of this church that I'm sure many, your, your hearts are being ruined right now and your marriages are being wrecked right now by things that we're talking about right here. Well, he goes on in chapter 5, verse 7 to talk about what we're supposed to do. Now look at it, verse 7. He says, Therefore, do not be partners with them, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord, and have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That's why it is said... Most scholars think he's quoting not here from the Old Testament, but from what was a baptismal kind of a hymn expression. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So the first thing he says is, he says, don't partner, don't participate with them. Now the very key thing is, who's them? Because I thought we're supposed to be light in the world. And so shouldn't I be around people who, whose lives are naturally given over to sinful desires because that's what you do before Christ. That's what we did before Christ. He's not talking about the world. 
he's talking about those in the church who would say and trivialize sin. I mean, when I think about the empty words, you know what I really think about? I I think about if you and I had ever been called upon by a brother or a sister or a close friend to give one of our organs so that they could live. All right, so we give the kidney. And then a couple years later, kind of overhear a conversation and, and, and your sister or your brother or your close friend's talking to, to somebody else and they're referencing this whole matter of, of needing an organ transplant. And they make light of the whole thing. I probably didn't need it anyways. I think I would have been fine without it. You're going, what? You kidding me? I sacrificed my own organ for you and my body's never been the same and I know you're alive because of it and now you're saying it wasn't a big deal? Well, that's exactly what those empty words are doing to the cross of Christ, saying it wasn't a big deal. Christ didn't really have to die for your sins. It's a huge deal. And those are the people that we aren't to participate with. We're not to partner with those kinds. They're going to lead us astray. They're going to lead us down the wrong path. And why don't we do it? Well, he goes and lists several things. The first in verse 8. We don't part with them because that way of living, giving into our desires, is what marked our old way of living. That's what we used to do. We're not like that anymore. He says we are darkness, but now we are light, light in the Lord. And what does that light look, look like? It looks like goodness and righteousness and truth, a life full of good deeds, a life that's doing the right thing pursues justice in this world, a light that's based on truth and a life that's guided by this truth, not on the basis of lies. So we are people who don't partner. He goes on to say we don't partner with them because verse 10, now we're about trying to please the Lord. We've been freed from trying to please the world. We, we really are discerning and trying to find out what pleases Jesus. And those are the things we want to do. That's why we don't partner with these people. And then he comes full circle and he says, not only do we not associate with these people, but he says, we also will have nothing to do with these fruitless deeds of darkness. You see it there in verse 11. Have nothing to do with them. So what are we to do? We're to separate ourselves, not from people out in the world, but from people within the church who would say to us, it's not a big deal, man. It's not a big deal. Don't hang around with those people. That is poison. And that will diminish the light of Christ in this place. The second thing he says in verse 11 is, what we're supposed to do, though, is we're to expose them. We're to expose these people. We're to shine in such a way that as we live out our life before others, that the light of Christ now exposes others. What does it do? It exposes their sin and it exposes their need for a Savior. And here's what you need to know, that when the light is on brightly in your life, people who aren't living according to the light of God's truth, they're going to get uncomfortable. See, your light's going to expose what's in their heart. And... The darkness doesn't like the light. It never has. John writes about that in John chapter 3, verse 19. 
And, and here's what he says. And some of you go, well, that's exactly what's going on with my family. I've just become a follower of Christ, and it's getting wiggy when I go home. Or you say, that's what's going on with my old buddies, with my old girlfriends. I'm, I'm hanging with them, but I'm not doing the stuff I used to do. And, and the fact that I'm living a different kind of life, it's just kind of wrecking the party. They don't want me around anymore. This is what Jesus said. This is the verdict. Well, actually, John's writing here about Jesus. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. He's speaking of Jesus, the light of the world. Light has come into the world. Jesus has shown up. But men love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So here's what I can say to you. When the light's on bright, 100 watts, 200 watts, what happens is the light of Christ in you starts to expose things that aren't right in other people's life, and they don't like it. They're going to push you away. They don't want to have that stuff exposed. So you can expect that. But there's something cool that this text talks about that you should also expect. You can find it in verse 13. In verse 13, he says this, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. You see that word visible? In the original language, is it's the word light. Everything that becomes exposed by the light becomes light. And what the scholars think is going on here is that Paul's saying light doesn't just reveal, and certainly it does that. We turn all the lights off right now. You can't see a whole lot of what's going on in this room. You get the lights up, ah, we, we see what's here. Light doesn't just reveal. It doesn't just expose. It also transforms. Light makes light. And how it does it is the light of Christ shining in your life exposes their sin and exposes their understanding that I need a Savior and I want what you have. I'm, I'm chasing all this stuff in this world. It's not satisfying me. And I'm finding that your life in Christ is bringing you the stuff that I'm longing for. Peace, joy, contentment. I, I, I need that. I don't have that. And so your light starts to transform other people's lives so that they too see Christ. So they too will have the light of Christ shining through you and they'll wake up and they'll rise from the dead and Christ will shine on them. Are you willing to be that kind of light? Will you leave the light on? For those of you who say, I I don't have that relationship with Christ. Man, when I think about what you're teaching, my life is not marked by giving up myself for others. I'm always trying to figure out how people can give up themselves for me. I'm all about me, and I'm miserable. And when it comes to giving in to desires, that's me too. I've chased it all, and none of it's satisfied. Of course it doesn't satisfy. Why do you think we're addicted to this stuff? If it's satisfied, we wouldn't be addicted to it. We'd get our fill. You never get your fill. The promises it promises are always empty. And you say, man, that's, I, I need Jesus. Then you call out to him and say, Jesus, shine. Shine in my life. May the light of your son give me life. Move me from darkness and from death into life. Forgive me. You reach out to him and he'll do that. 
Let me give you a last story. 1918, Italy. A guy named Alceo Dosena. He was a famous artist, and his craft was sculpture. And he was so good that he had it down in just doing these great replicas of all the famous statues of the Renaissance. He'd averaged, his average price for these things as he sold it to an art dealer was about 200 bucks. And the art dealer claimed that he was selling them all as reproductions. But this art dealer was wise. He saw this stuff. He said, this guy's good. He was so good that he sold it as original pieces to the chief art dealers and art museums around the world. They were buying it all up, thinking they were buying the original. Ten years later, 1928, DeSena finds out about the sham, and he sues the guy. By this time, the story's out, and his work now is catapulted. Everybody wants DeSena's work. There's an auction in New York in 1933. The Italian government is so concerned about this guy's reproductive abilities that they say, look, we've got to start putting official certificates from the Italian government that says this. This sculpture is a genuine imitation of the original. Did you hear that? What? What are we talking about? A genuine imitation. And it's exactly what we're talking about. It's what God's asking us to do as dearly loved children that we would imitate him, that we would be genuine imitations of the original, shining for him, changing lives to change the world. Let's pray. And so, Lord, our desire is for you to shine in this place, for you to shine through this place, each one of our lives. Lord, give hope to those who in this battle with sinful desires are are discouraged because it it seems like these desires always have the upper hand. Lord, rescue those that right now realize from your word that they've actually given up the fight. There is no fight anymore. And we pray, Lord, that we as a people at Door Creek would burn brightly for your son and for his purposes in this world. Pray this in Christ's name, for his glory, amen.